0: Good morning, everybody. Will you all stand with me for the reading of the Word of God? We're going to be reading Matthew 1, 18 through 25. The birth of Jesus Christ. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus.
1: Well, good morning, Fellowship Nashville. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I have a confession to make. I have not done my Christmas video either, Katie. (laughs) But I plan to this afternoon. Boy, it's hard to believe it's December already, isn't it? Christmas is less than three weeks away. Did it sneak up on anybody else or is it just me? Okay, it's coming up fast, quickly, to use correct grammar. And I don't know about you, but I genuinely enjoy this time of year. I like the lights, the Christmas trees, the stockings hung with care, the holiday music, the fires in the fireplace, the family traditions, the hot cocoa, the Christmas cookies, the way people are generally nicer to each other this time of year, receiving gifts, giving gifts. I even like the old ratty Santa hat that Levi Scott wears for the entire month. Now, one thing I could do without are the cheesy Hallmark movies. <laughs> That's going to come, come across with mixed reviews. But overall, I love this time of year. And, and there, for me, there's this general feeling of nostalgia that comes with it. But I've, I've become more aware of something as I've grown older. Along with all the fullness and enjoyment, um, celebration that this season brings, I've noticed some lonely corners in my heart i've noticed amidst all of the celebration i still still feel a little bit empty can you relate with that at all and i've noticed it particularly when when you know the there's empty boxes and wrapping paper all over the living room floor when I'm putting the Christmas lights back in the box and putting it back up in the attic when I'm dropping off the the half-dead Christmas tree out by the curb for the trash man to pick up. The Christmas season in our culture promises so much but delivers much less than what our hearts really long for. Many of you may feel this emptiness even more profoundly than I do. Singer and songwriter David Wilcox speaks to this emptiness, this loneliness. In in the lyrics of a song they wrote all the way back when I graduated from college in 1994. Probably very, very few of you have heard of him as an artist, but he's one of my favorite songwriters. He writes this. The depth of your dreams, the height of your wishes, the length of your vision to see, the hope of your heart is much bigger than this, for it's made out of what might be. Picture your hope, your heart's desire, as a castle that you must keep. In all of its splendor, it's drafty with lonely. This hard heart is too hard to heat. You know, I don't know if David Wilcox is a follower of Jesus or not, but he hits the nail on the head when talking about the emptiness and the loneliness that we all feel in our hearts. The longings of our heart are like a drafty castle that's too hard to heat. There's got to be something more that we were made for than this world currently has to offer us. The chorus of the song goes on to say this, but when I get lonely, that's only a sign. Some room is empty. That room is there by design. If I feel hollow, well, that's just my proof that there's some more for me to follow. That's what the lonely is for. Again, I don't know if he's a believer, but he's tuned in to what's going on in the human heart. There's got to be a greater reality out there somewhere because of this loneliness, this emptiness that I feel in my heart. Christmas season in our culture promises so much, but delivers so very little around what our hearts truly long for. And in pondering this reality from a pastoral perspective... We've decided to take time over the next three weeks, this one included, to to look at the first two chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. Because in the Christmas story that we find there, we'll discover the ultimate answer to our heart's deepest longings. The ultimate answer to the cold draft of loneliness that blows through all of our hearts. Peppered throughout the narrative of Matthew um, is... uh, Carefully chosen and placed fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies. Matthew goes to great lengths to show that Jesus is the resolution of thousands of years of human heart longing, thousands of years of anticipation, thousands of years of wanting something more amidst the emptiness and the loneliness. And Matthew's goal is to show us that Jesus is the culmination of God's redemptive plan, a redemptive plan that was set into motion before the foundations of the earth were laid, and is the ultimate answer to the profound emptiness, the lonely, as David Wilcox put it, that we all feel in our hearts, even amidst a season where we like to pretend that all is merry and bright. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 if you have a Bible with you. If not, no problem. It'll be up on the screen behind me. If you don't have a Bible, we, we want to invite you to take one from our connect point as our gift to you. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew wrote his gospel to his fellow Jews in order to prove to them that Jesus was indeed the Christ. He was the real deal Messiah. He was, the, he was not some imposter, but he descended from King David as that prophesied king, the anointed one, the Messiah. He is the promise that won't disappoint. And to do this, Matthew starts his gospel by going to Ancestry.com, of sorts, in in the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter one. He starts with the family tree of Jesus, tracing the lineage of Jesus through his adoptive father, Joseph, all the way back to Abraham through King David to show that he has that rightful line to the throne. As we pick up Matthew's narrative this morning, Beginning with verse 18 of chapter 1. We're going to sort our thoughts into three buckets. You know, it's been a while. Guess This is for you, Gus. Um, <laughs> it's been a while since we sorted thoughts into buckets, but I'm going to get back to preaching with buckets this morning. Here's bucket number one is how Jesus came. Bucket number two, who Jesus is. Bucket number three, why it matters. So how Jesus came, who Jesus is, and why it matters. So if you're taking notes, that's going to be our outline together this morning. First of all, how Jesus came. Let's reread verse 18 together. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, the word betrothed here is not one we use in our culture. We use the term engaged to describe that period before marriage. But this word betrothed means a great deal more than the meaning we assign to the term engagement. There's a lot more commitment behind it. When a couple got betrothed in the first century Jewish culture, they entered into a legally binding agreement or contract with each other. They were already considered to be husband and wife when they got betrothed. And so breaking a betrothal was not as easy as just taking off a ring and giving it back. No, you had to actually issue a certificate of divorce to get out of a betrothal. But even though the commitment level was so much higher in a betrothal, they did not come together to consummate the marriage until the end of the betrothal period, until the wedding ceremony when the, the groom would oftentimes come from his father's house to where the bride lived. They'd have a, a big party that lasted a week, and then in, they would—or um, maybe the party happened at the father's. That's where it happened. They went, went and got the bride, had a, a wedding processional, then had a party for a week, and that's when the wedding or the, the marriage was consummated. And betrothals typically lasted for about a year. And Matthew tells us that it's sometime in this year-long period that Mary gets pregnant. Mary is found to be with child, as our text says. And Matthew makes it very clear that the child wasn't Joseph's. Before they came together, she was found to be with child. But Matthew adds a very important qualifier here look again at the end of verse 18. She was found to be with child, how? From the Holy Spirit. The same phrase, from the Holy Spirit, comes up again in the text, just a few verses later in verse 20. And whenever you have something repeated in scripture, it's, a little flag should go up. Bing! This is important. Repetition is key. Matthew is highlighting something. He wants to make sure we get something. From the Holy Spirit. We have to pay attention here. Matthew is making it crystal clear that nothing improper took place. He goes to great lengths to point out that Jesus' birth did not occur or result from a normal human conception. On the contrary, this is a miraculous divine conception from the Holy Spirit. So back to our first thought bucket this morning. How Jesus came. How did Jesus come? Jesus came through the miracle of divine conception and virgin birth. Say that out loud with me. Jesus came through the miracle of a divine conception and virgin birth. Now, now why am I taking my time to shine my flashlight on this point this morning? Well, because this miracle of the divine conception and virgin birth is foundational to the Christian faith. Absolutely foundational. If this goes away, it crumbles. I'll lean into that a little bit more in a little bit. It's a foundation upon which the identity of Jesus is built, which is our second thought bucket, who is Jesus. But before we dive into that bucket together, let me first acknowledge that for some of you, this miracle might be really hard for you to believe. And you're not alone. You know, when when critics of the Bible and skeptics levy attacks on the veracity of the Bible, this is usually one of the things that comes up. This is usually one of the points of contention. A virgin can't give birth. That's impossible. Obviously, Mary and Joseph must just have a little slip up in a moment of passion during their betrothal. Or perhaps Mary was more than a little flirty with a handsome Roman soldier. How can anyone believe in the virgin birth? Well, if you have an anti-supernatural bias and come to the text with the presupposition that miracles do not and cannot happen, well, then I will admit that this is difficult to believe. But if you let the text speak for itself, there is evidence here in the narrative that points to the veracity of this miracle. Let's look at it. The first substantial piece of evidence is Joseph and and, and how he acts throughout this narrative. Let's look at his attitudes and actions. And and notice his immediate change of attitude towards Mary in verse 19. Let's read that together. And her husband Joseph, notice he's called her husband here. Um, Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So when Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, And he knows that the child isn't his. He thought what any person in his situation would thought. He thought, you know, I've got to hit the eject button on this relationship. Mary's been unfaithful to me. She's pregnant with somebody else's child. I need to get out. Joseph is a man of justice. He's a just man. He knows that he must divorce her for her unfaithfulness. But he's also a kind man and resolves to do it quietly. He decides, you know, I'm not going to give the take the provision that the Mosaic Law gives me to make this a public thing and actually have her stoned to death. No, I'm not going to go that route. I'm going to do this quietly so that there's not public shame heaped uh, public shame heaped upon Mary. So he's a kind man. But by the end of the chapter, where do we find Joseph? How how have his actions and attitudes been totally flipped upside down? Well. That's what we find. His plans to divorce Mary are no longer there. Instead, he's decided to marry Mary and adopt Jesus as his son. Well, what brought about this sudden change? What on earth, or not of the earth, caused this change? Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So, the appearance of a supernatural messenger with a message about the supernatural conception of this child has a profound effect on Joseph's thinking and actions. Skip ahead to verse 24. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to the son. So she, he went ahead and got married to Mary. And he called his name Jesus. Joseph completely reversed his plans based on the angel's visitation and message at great social cost to himself. He believed. Joseph, the one person besides Mary who had the most at stake in this whole thing, at great cost to his own reputation, at great cost to his own future, believes in this divine conception. This evidence points to the veracity of this miracle, of this story. But then Matthew also adds a second bit of evidence for us, and it's quite profound. This had all been previously predicted in Scripture. 700 years before this event happened, the prophet Isaiah says this, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So about 700 years before Jesus even came on the scene, the prophet Isaiah predicted that Jesus would be born of a virgin. That's pretty amazing if you think about it. So when you, when you let the Bible speak for itself, and you take these two points of evidence and you put them together, it lends credence. It, it shows the veracity of this narrative. And this forms the foundation for our second thought bucket this morning. So how did Jesus come for review? Say it out loud. Jesus came through the miracle of a divine conception and the virgin birth. Now for the second bucket, the identity of Jesus, who Jesus is. A little over 15 years ago, um, a Christian pastor and author from Michigan named Rob Bell, who has now unfortunately gone off the deep end theologically and left the church in favor of universalism, but he wrote a book back then entitled Velvet Elvis, and in it, he posed the question, is the virgin birth all that important to Christianity? If we got rid of the virgin birth, would, we, would anything change? Would you lose anything? And he never, landed the, the, he never answered his own question, but with it, he was insinuating, or at least toying with the idea that we wouldn't lose anything by discarding the idea of the divine conception and virgin birth. But Matthew and every Orthodox Christian, including myself, would totally disagree with that. What do we lose if we discard the virgin birth? We lose Jesus. That's what we lose. The whole identity of Jesus rests on his divine conception and virgin birth. It's foundational to why we worship him, why we follow him, why we proclaim him to others. Because through the divine conception and virgin birth, we learn two essential things about who Jesus is. First of all, we learn that because Jesus was born... Um, of a human, Uh, he was a son of Mary, he was fully human. That's the first thing we learn. Jesus is fully human. It's a common mistake to overlook the humanity of Jesus and view him more like Superman. You know, he looks like us, but he's not really one of us. He's from another planet, maybe half human, but not fully human like us. And this mistaken notion is propagated in one of our most popular Christmas carols. You know the one I'm talking about? Silent night. No crying he made? No. <laughs> Jesus was a normal baby. It was not a silent night. It might have been a holy night, but it wasn't a silent night. I think Andrew Peterson gets it better when he writes, it was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night. It's on the streets of David Town. Jesus came into the world by means of natural childbirth as Mary's son. He was fully human and obviously would have cried like any other baby cries when he had a wet diaper or he was hungry or he needed something. How else would he communicate? And the gospel narratives go on to point out the fact that he had a full range of human characteristics. He had a human body, Matthew 4 2. He was hungry and needed something to eat. Matthew 8 24, he grew tired and needed rest. He had a human mind, Luke 2 52. He increased in wisdom and knowledge, which means that he had to learn things. He had to learn to speak and to think and to read and to write, just like any other child. He didn't come out of the womb with a PhD in theology. Jesus also had human emotions. He wept at Lazarus' tomb. He was gripped with fear and distress in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus even had a good sense of humor. There's passages through the gospel narratives that make no sense unless you read them with Jesus having a twinkle in his eye and a grin on his face. For instance, the, the conversation he has with the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew chapter seven. I'm sorry, Mark chapter seven. Look that up. It makes no sense unless Jesus is being tongue-in-cheek and being a little bit sarcastic saying it with a twinkle in his eye. Hey, there's other stuff like, uh, before you remove the speck of dust in your eye, um, remove the plank from your own. That probably was followed up by laughter. He probably said it with a, a smile on his face. Jesus had a good sense of humor. Jesus had the full range of human characteristics because he was fully human. In fact, when Jesus started doing miracles... People from his hometown were astonished primarily because they were eyewitnesses to what? His humanity. They had seen him grow up. They remark in Mark chapter six, verse three, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of Jesus, James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? They were witnesses to his humanity. Jesus isn't some alien type of Superman that looks like us but isn't one of us. No, he is fully human. The second profound truth that arises from the doctrine of the divine conception and virgin birth that we, we see expounded on in our text here is that Jesus is also fully God. Say those two things with me. Jesus is fully human And Jesus is fully God. Matthew goes to great lengths to show us that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Joseph was not his biological father, only his adoptive father. So just as Jesus had the full range of human characteristics, he also has the full range of what? Divine characteristics as well. Jesus had power over natural forces. He could just speak a word and the wind and the waves would stop. Jesus had power over supernatural forces. He could cast out a demon from somebody and they would obey him. He had power over sickness and disease. He caused the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak, the leper to be whole again. He had power even over death itself. He just said a word, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus rose from the dead. And Jesus himself rose from the dead. Not only was Jesus fully human, he was fully divine. You and I as persons only have one nature. We are fully human. But Jesus had two natures in one person, fully human and fully divine. His humanity does not diminish his deity, and his deity does not diminish his humanity. And the divine conception teaches us right from the beginning of his life that Jesus was God the Son, God in the flesh, God incarnate, God with us. Jesus is the only person ever to walk the face of the earth that at the moment of his birth was simultaneously younger than his parents and infinitely older too. Well, why does this matter? What does this mean for us today? This is our third thought bucket. Why it matters. Why it matters. I'd like to answer this question by focusing in on two things that Jesus is called by Matthew in this passage. Two names assigned to Jesus. Jesus is called two things that show us that he is the ultimate answer to the longings in our hearts. He's the ultimate answer to that lonely wind that blows through, that lonely cold wind, that draft that we feel in our hearts that are too hard to heat. In these two names, the Christmas story points to the soul-satisfying reality that the Christmas season simply can't muster up on its own, even with all the nostalgia that we try to pump into it with our lights and tinsel and cheesy Hallmark movies. The first name is Emmanuel, Emmanuel. And, and it comes from the prophecy in Isaiah that's quoted here by man by by Matthew. Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. What does this mean? Why does it matter? This means that we do not have a God who does not understand our humanity. No, Jesus understands us. He knows what it's like to be human. Charles Haddon Spurgeon puts it this way. Being with us in our nature, God was with us in all life's pilgrimage. Scarcely can you find a halting place in the march of life at which Jesus has not paused, or a weary league which he has not traversed. From the gate of the entrance, even to the door which closes life's way, the footprints of Jesus can be traced. Were you in the cradle? He was there. Were you a child under parental authority? Christ also was a boy in a home at Nazareth. Have you entered upon life's battle? Your Lord and Master did the same. And although he lived not to an old age, yet through incessant toil and suffering, he bore the marred visage which attends a battered old age. Are you alone? So is he. Do you mix in public society? He labored in the thickest crowds. Where can you find yourself where Jesus has not been? On the hilltop or in the valley? On the land or on the sea? In the daylight or in the darkness? Where, I say, can you be without discovering that Jesus has been there before you? Emmanuel. God with us. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he promised his disciples something. He promised them that he would not leave them as orphans, but would send the Holy Spirit. That's why in some of his last words to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, he says, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Is it the end of the age yet? No, Jesus hasn't come back yet. Which means what? He is still with us always. He is still Emmanuel, God with us. That means that if you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, God has adopted you into his family, and Jesus goes to work with you. Jesus goes to school with you. Jesus goes home with you. Jesus goes to the chemotherapy appointment with you. Jesus is with you, you're never alone. It means that when we gather together as God's people here at Waverly Belmont Elementary School on a Sunday morning, what? Jesus is with us. It means when we gather together in our city groups, it means that Jesus is with us. When we gather in our discipleship groups, Jesus is with us. Even when we're alone and afraid, even when we are suffering and hurting or lonely, Jesus is with us. Us. Emmanuel, God with us. The second name assigned to the baby in our narrative is the name what? Jesus. Look at verse 21. We skipped over earlier. This is the angel talking to Joseph. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name. Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Yeshua, or how we pronounce it in English, Joshua. And do you know what that name means? Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, it's all the same. It means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. That's Jesus' name. The Lord saves. What did Jesus come to do? He came to save Us from our sins. There's no other Saviors. There's no other salvation. There's no other name by which the Bible declares we must be be saved. Other religions do not save. Other philosophies do not save. Other moralities do not save. And I know this isn't popular, but it's true. Jesus alone saves. He saves from what? He saves from God's wrath against human sin. Here's the truth. We are all by nature and by choice sinners running headlong towards hell apart from Jesus. I'll say that again. We are all by nature and choice sinners running headlong towards hell apart from Jesus. But the very name Jesus, the Lord saves, points forward to the cross. It foreshadows his death in our place on our behalf for our sins. He is Emmanuel. But he's also Yeshua. Jesus is with us. And Jesus can save us also. Let me say this very clearly. My job as a pastor is to tell the truth from the Bible. And your job is to make a decision. If you don't know Jesus, if you haven't transferred your trust wholly to Jesus for salvation away from your own morality, away from your own resume of good deeds, and holy to Jesus. If you have not done that, you are standing in the path of the wrath of God. If you don't have Jesus, the full brunt of God's wrath is heading your way like a Mack truck. It doesn't matter if you have a Christmas tree. It doesn't matter if you send out Christmas cards, enjoy Christmas gifts, and sing Christmas songs. You must not miss the Christ in Christmas. It has eternal consequences. Don't lose the Christmas story amidst the Christmas season. If you have not been saved from your sins by trusting in Jesus, you're in grave, eternal danger frightful danger. There is a heaven and there is a hell. Jesus talked a lot about it. You are a sinner, but good news, there's a Savior. Jesus, Yeshua, the Lord saves. And in this season where we give gifts and receive gifts, let me plead with you. Give your sin to Jesus and receive the gift of eternal life. Give your sin to Jesus. He died for it. And receive the free gift of eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. That's the ultimate Christmas gift. Have you done that? If not, will you do that today? Will you talk to the person who drugged you here? (laughs) Would you come talk with me afterwards? I'd be happy to share with you how you can transfer your trust from anything else you might be trusting in to Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Just come find me. For those of you who have given your sin to Jesus and been given the gift of eternal life, as the band comes back up, I want to invite you to take this communion cup that should have been on your seat this morning. This is something that we as believers in Jesus regularly partake in to remind us of what Jesus has done for us. On the night before he went to the cross, Jesus sat with his disciples having one last supper, the Passover meal, and in that meal, he had reinterpreted two elements and pointed them towards himself as the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover. He was the lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. The first element he reinterpreted was the bread. And he took it. Go ahead and take it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. They probably didn't know what he was talking about at that point, but they soon would. The next day, his body would be broken on the cross. So if you're a believer in Jesus, eat it remember what Jesus has done for you. And then he took the cup, another element in the Passover meal. And he said this, this is the new covenant in my blood. I'm not going to drink of this cup until we're all together in the kingdom again. I'm not going to drink of this cup again until we're all together in the kingdom. Drink it in remembrance of my blood being shed for you. And the next day, they would see that picture lived out, his body broken, his blood shed for the remission of sins, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God with us, Emmanuel, Yeshua, the Lord saves. Amen.